Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for the Bible. Bible Geek here, Robert M. Price, uh, ready for another exciting round of Bible questions. Uh, yes, sirree. By the way, I just discovered someone nicely, kindly posted my recent Imagine No Religion conference talk on Facebook. Uh, the actual title of it is, uh, according to the you know event schedule, Imagine No Jesus from Myths to Jesus from Jesus to Myths. Though there it has something like... Uh, subjective consciousness and Jesus, I forget. I don't think the uh, title was listed at the source where uh, they found this, but just avoid um, confusion. That's Those are two names of the same thing. So, uh, what, uh, what else do we have to do today? Well, uh, questions like uh, this and uh, This is uh, from Don from Colorado. As for my personal spiritual journey, I was brought up as a Southern Baptist hallelujah, and I latched onto the comfort of the certainty they offered at a young age. Over the years, as I tried to live my life in accordance with their dogma, I found it failed to live up to its promises in too many ways to list here. Since I was taught that acceptance of Christ as my personal Savior depended on me making a conscious choice, I reasoned that for my salvation to be legitimate, it had to make sense to me. You have addressed, you know, love you, Lord your God, with all your mind. Uh, You have addressed many of the points I came up with as to why it failed in that regard, and you've added quite a few more that I'd never even considered. Thank you so much for that. I feel better than ever about my lack of faith. Hallelujah. Uh, One thing about the Christ myth that I've not heard you address and that has puzzled me over the years was why was it so popular uh, and uh, how it spread so quickly if it was totally untrue. I came up with a theory about this. Uh, and I would like to hear your opinion of it. Well, first, let me just interject here. You're sort of smuggling into the theory something that doesn't belong to it, namely that Christianity began just when it says it did implicitly in the New Testament, whereas, in fact, that uh, may be part of the propaganda, part of the foundation legend, uh, and with emphasis on the legend rather than the foundation, but the Christ myth theory assumes a gradual accumulation of, of, well, like, 
biological evolution of various mutations in a broader, older theory of a dying and rising God. Uh, and so who knows when it, uh, when would you say it, uh, it started? I mean, uh, it may be the renaming of another dying and rising God long familiar to Jews, uh, Baal, Osiris, and so forth. Uh, Tammuz, uh, certainly clear that they knew about these gods hundreds of years before. So, you know, when did uh, Christianity emerge as a new species? I don't know that uh, we know so uh, specifically as to make this a problem. But anyway, let's go. My reasoning goes like this, Dunn says. At the time of Christ, society was divided into different levels of humans, from the slaves at the bottom to aristocrats at the top. An aristocrat could kill a slave for any reason and was free to treat slaves in any disgusting way they chose. The message of the Christ myth to the lower classes was that you, even as a slave, have a soul and have equal and maybe even greater value to God than a cruel and dishonorable aristocrat. It must have been very comforting to a slave he was being abused to picture himself in heaven one day and his master burning in hell for his sins. There were lots of slaves and lower class people, so I could see where the Christ myth message would have spread quickly among them. My understanding is that Christianity was spread from the bottom of society up as time went on. What says the geek on this? Well, what you've said certainly would account for a lot of the interest taken in Christianity among the lower classes. I mean, that's true no matter, you know, whether you think there was a historical Jesus or it began as a myth. Um, in uh, um, the book, uh, um, oh boy, what the heck was it again? The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. He says that based on the population evidence we have, even if it did start at the conventional date, the uh, spread of it wouldn't be that surprising because uh, based on the numbers we have in different sources in different periods, that the spread of it was steady and reasonably rapid, but no huge bombshell because the same sort of growth can be traced in more modern uh, groups, new groups like the Mormons and the Moonies. And so it may not really be such a shocking out of nowhere explosion as, as it appears. But at any point, you're, you, what you say, no doubt, was correct. However, there's also a kind of a reconsideration of the, the class basis of Christianity. Uh, all the documents in, in the New Testament imply at least a secondary education. Uh, they don't appear to be written for people that would have been uneducated and so on, uh, which, of course, may imply the pseudonymity of them, like uh, Loman or Neighbor or one of the Dutch radicals said, if you really think Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians, to the historical Galatians over there in the outback of Asia Minor, that's like picturing Hegel lecturing to New Guinea savages. Uh, it, it's got to be uh, a pose, and this, this might be too. Uh, but uh, So the, the idea of uh, Christianity as the cult of the poor may be a kind of romanticizing of it. That's certainly the way it appears in oh, 1950s uh, Jesus and Paul and Peter uh, movies. 
Um, but so a lot of things involved there. Uh, Don goes on. Another idea I have about the Christ myth is that the Christ figure, real or not, was the first founding father of the Western democracies. My idea here is that if there had never been the teachings of Christ bringing a sense of equality of souls, there would never have been the Declaration of Independence that brought a sense of equality before the law. What says the geek? Uh, that does kind of make sense, but of course, democracy in in America was based on the the Greek idea, and uh, that doesn't seem to have uh, had anything to do with with uh, the Jesus figure, except possibly being partly the inspiration of it. Now, in uh, Greece, uh, like Athens, not everybody had the vote. But then again, it wasn't that clear that uh, even if you did believe in the brotherhood of, of all Christians anyway, that you would have found slavery uh, obnoxious and objectionable, as some of the New Testament documents exhort slaves to obey their masters and stuff. It, it's difficult to know how long it took for the idea of, uh, you know, you're all one in Christ, there's no, fra- no, no free, no slave, no man, no woman, no Greek, no Jew, and all that. We don't know how long that took to, um, to permeate Christian behavior so that they actually drop these distinctions in practice. Uh, that's come up especially with regard to the role of women in early Christianity though it does seem like following the pattern of sectarian development they probably would have been more egalitarian at the beginning and I think that's that's probably right so maybe the thing with uh, slaves kicked in pretty quick we do know like in the second century there were manumission ceremonies in churches where they would take up a collection and buy the freedom of slaves who were Christians members of the congregation and then free them Uh, so that I guess didn't take all that long uh, but even well, so that that implies it existed in both classes. But I don't know enough about the sociology of it, uh, and the links are tenuous because you could be even in the 19th century a devout Bible-believing Christian and also advocate slavery as legit because the Bible seemed to legitimate it. So uh, it, it's difficult to, for me to to uh, to to uh, even hazard a guess there. Uh, there were slave owners who uh, had a hand in writing the uh, Constitution and who signed the Declaration that didn't seem to think Christianity and democracy implied opposition to slavery. Uh, and they should have, I guess, but uh, whether they did or not re- would really be the relevant question in terms of whether Western democracy sprang from the root of Christianity. Commander Scotty says, uh, the so-called new quest for the historical Jesus is said to have begun with a lecture given by Ernst Kesemann to a gathering of Bultmann's former students in 1953. Of course, Kesemann was one of them. Entitled, The Problem of the Historical Jesus, in which Kesemann pointed out that too clear a distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith was inadvisable. He argued, among other things, that the failure to appreciate the particularity of Jesus ran the risk of docetism and that the very format of the Gospels showed quite clearly that the earliest Christians regarded the life story of Jesus as important for faith. 
Uh, well, uh, did they? Depends on whether the Gospels represent the views of the earliest Christians. Anyhow, while Kazemann was still deeply skeptical of the historical worth of the Gospels, he did at least believe that it was methodologically possible to establish a few undeniable facts about Jesus. What do you make of this position? Is it, in the end, colored by a sort of apologetics? Yeah, I think it was, uh, and uh, apologetics for a particular theology, right? Uh, Kazemann and the other Marburgers uh, were essentially Bultmannians, even if they were a bit revisionist. Uh, Kazemann and uh, Borncom and uh, James M. Robinson and others uh, participated in the New Quest and I, uh, I've read these books. They're quite fascinating. Kazaman is just a brilliant, brilliant New Testament scholar. Uh, he's, a, for me, a joy to read and just so incisive. Uh, uh, but it does seem to me that they were afraid of docetism, like whatever Jesus was, historically, really, who cares as long as he gave rise to the kerygma uh, of existential decision for authentic existence uh, on the part of Christians. And uh, they, they thought, well, it would uh, seem less arbitrary if we could show that the self-understanding of Jesus was in continuity with that existential posture. Obviously, for him, it would not have centered on the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, as it did for Bultmann. But is there a pre-cross self-understanding or or understanding of existence to be found in the, the teaching that seems to go back to Jesus that that would naturally dovetail with or lead to the um, the uh, the gospel. Was there enough continuity between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching about him? Uh, not a not a picayune contrived question. You could show that in the case of Muhammad, for instance, at least you know the way the story is told. We're told that Muhammad would sum up the the faith that he wanted people to have as belief in Allah and the last day, the impending final judgment in light of which you had better get straight with Allah right now. Well, once he died and uh, became the seal of the prophets and all of that, the Shahada, the Islamic creed, became, uh, I believe uh, that... uh, there is no God but Allah, and that Muhammad is the apostle of Allah. Um, Well, Muhammad didn't make his own role in the plan of salvation part of the creed. He, He didn't really need to. It wasn't at that point yet. But the messenger became part of the message. And yet there's certainly a continuity in between them. In a way, if you're saying... Muhammad is the apostle of Allah, you're, you're in a way saying Muhammad was right. We accept what he said, right? That's, that's kind of the, 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 the real point of it. 
Later on, Muhammad was glorified as a pre-existent being that came down from heaven and all that, but, but I don't think that was the point originally. And by the same token, I think Kazaman is saying it really would help, and maybe it's necessary, to show that uh, Jesus of Nazareth had the same experience of God and authentic existence, to use modern terms for it, uh, by throwing oneself completely on the will of God uh, and, and whatever future he may have in store, not trying to foreclose salvation by producing a resume of good works and piety. Uh, the, the, the same stance without an atonement involved. And, of course, the, the Boltmanians demythologized the atonement so that it was the, the death and resurrection were really the permanent availability through preaching of the existential challenge of Jesus. And um, so it's, it's a legitimate sort of a question. But I uh, think that Van A. Harvey, in his book, The Historian and the Believer, uh, really hit the, the crucifixion nail on the head when he said that the new quest is, is just a fantasy. Uh, the, the, uh, it's, it's not clear that uh, these sayings that Kazaman and the others appeal to really do go back to Jesus. And uh, even if they do, that is scant material from which to be able to psych out Jesus and try to figure out what his worldview and his attitude were like. You look at the reams of material by uh, more recent historical figures. Loads of quotes and some writings from Abe Lincoln, and, and historians still differ radically on what the guy was about. How can you possibly think that you've got Jesus figured out on the basis of a handful of sayings that, uh, well, at least you can't prove he didn't say them? Uh, that just seems uh, like a kind of sophisticated proof texting. Here's what I want Jesus to have been like, so, you know, here's, here's a few passages that we can quote in support of that. And I, I think he's, he's right about that. The question is not stupid, but I think the answer was a little bit uh, contrived and over-optimistic, which aren't the same thing, but I think both apply. Van Harvey's book is just great for understanding historical method and how it applies to the Gospels and uh, liberal theology as well as conservative. Uh, by the way, Bultmann did eventually depart from his almost total skepticism on the historical Jesus. He figured there had to have been one. There must have been a first match that lit the fuse, pretty much the way Tillich looked at it. Um, but uh, later he, he responded to the charge of docetism by saying, well, you know, and, and you can find this in Jesus and the Word. He, he figured there were a number of sayings of Jesus that were authentic. He'd already defended uh, their uh, authenticity in the great, great book, History of the Synoptic Tradition. But in this summary volume of uh, not doing the work to disentangle it from secondary material, but by saying, okay, here's our database, as the Jesus Seminar would later say, uh, from this, what can we make of the message of Jesus? Uh, and it's uh, not that skimpy, actually. So he kind of joined the new quest himself. It was this that uh, Funk and Crossan and the Jesus Seminar were trying to revive when they started the, the seminar. The idea that you can 
sort of go back into the head of Jesus and try to look at things his way and that that's square one for Christian theology. I've always had some suspicion about that because it's not like you're repudiating dogmatic Christology because aren't you presupposing one version of it and thinking that the way Jesus looked at things is the way we ought to do as well. I mean, they used to say, let's not look at Jesus, but with Jesus at what he saw. Well, why why him and not the Buddha or Socrates? And uh, so I think that they were just sort of the, the watered-down uh, Christianity, uh, even of, of liberalism. I uh, do need to be more careful that I've been here. Theological liberalism was not really the same thing as... Uh, as oh, uh, Bultmann and, and the Neo-Orthodox, he and Tillich really were on the left wing of Neo-Orthodoxy. They felt they needed to interpret in modern terms the dogmas and the myths of traditional Christianity, whereas the liberals before them, Harnack, Ritchell, guys like that, and the ones after, like the process theologians, they uh, were happy to... Uh, or they felt it necessary, let me put it that way, to just jettison various elements of traditional Christianity that they felt just did not make sense anymore. Uh, these, uh, the results may not have been all that different, but uh, the neo-Orthodox uh, were trying to, to give a little more credit to the traditions. Well, anyway. Um, uh, okay. Uh, Thanks a bunch, Commander Scotty, and be sure you have some famous Daves for me. Lucky stiff living out there where they got him. Um, okay, now it is from uh, Ewan Thompson. My question is regarding the giants in the Bible. As it says in Genesis, the Nephilim existed before the flood, yet it also shows them in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Amos, and Joshua after the flood. Well, in the King James Version, no, I think you're right. Uh, my question is, how did they survive the flood? I can find no real explanation for this in the Bible or online. Are both groups related, or did more angels go after human girls after the flood? Also, there were other giants in the Bible, Gog, Magog. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Also, were the other giants in the Bible, Gog, Magog, and Goliath, Nephilim? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's really the answer to this. Well, there are really two answers. One is that um, the that the sons of God or lesser gods were not believed to have mated with mortal women that time only. Because I think all of these stories about a barren woman... Um, receiving a visit from an angel and uh, saying, don't worry, you're going to have a son. Uh, and then they do, like uh, Samuel's mother, Samson's mother, uh, Isaac's mother, and so on. Uh, John the Baptist's mother, even. But uh, these were originally stories about the God who appeared 
now masked under the the term the angel of Yahweh or the angel of Elohim, it seems clear to me that they were supposed to have been gods who impregnated mortal women like Zeus and Apollo and these others did. But to keep the stories in the Bible, they had to sort of make believe they were angels or something instead and that they simply gave the woman the news. But it, it seems to me pretty clear. I mean, I can't prove it, but it seems to me very clear that these are cases of more fraternization between the sons of God and the daughters of men, so that, yeah, there would have been uh, these Nephilim, more and more of them, and Goliath would be a good example. He wasn't supposed to have survived the flood or something, right? And uh, so I think you're right about that. But on the other hand, it's equally possible that this is just one of those several indications that Genesis combines traditions, some of which contained a flood story and others which did not, uh, like when it speaks of Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal Cain, these culture heroes that started arts and uh, trends and lifestyle shepherding, music, uh, metallurgy and all that, that continue on into the reader's day no flood is presupposed. They didn't have to rediscover uh, these things. It presupposes clearly a direct continuity between these guys at the dawn of time and the reader's own day without a flood, uh, though there are others that do have the flood. And I think this, this may ultimately prove to be a case of that, that the Nephilim story, uh, though it's... Pl- I know what you're thinking, but wait a minute, this is the introduction to the flood. Yeah, but it didn't originally belong there. Some later editor decided that this story, originally an ethnological myth to try to explain the great height of these Nephilim, Rephaim, etc., Anakim, that... Uh, th- Boy, how could they be so much taller than us? They're, they're six feet plus. Uh, and, uh, well, it must be that they have divine DNA, so to speak. There was nothing wrong with that originally. Uh, but uh, later on, uh, they decided, and that's too polytheistic, let's say that these were angels and that they shouldn't have uh, mated with mortal women. And the fact that they did, that's the origin of sin, the evil imagination, on account of which God decided to flood out the human race and start over. But there's no implication of that in the either of the J or E flood stories, and it doesn't seem to fit in. It just seems to have been stuck there as a way to do something with the, the old myth uh, and to explain how the heck uh, the human race was so corrupt. Because way back when, they didn't think the Eden, Eden story was about that. Adam and Eve don't really sin or disobey God even. That's, I've gotten into that a good bit. Uh, and uh, Jewish thought generally took it that way and assumed that the uh, and read the Nephilim thing, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, as the origin of, of sin. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, there are a couple of good possibilities. Uh, then Ewan says, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Uh, one final question. Are there any lost non-canonical Bible books you'd like to have known more about? Uh, well, yeah, I, if you mean like I uh, wish we had detailed descriptions or that we actually would rediscover the thing. I'd love to see the gospel according to the Hebrews. Uh, I think he can largely reconstruct it, but I'd love to see it and ditto with the gospel of the Marcionites. 
I would love to see Papias' exposition of the oracles of the Lord. Oh boy, would that be interesting. Um, oh, let's see, the book of Yasher, the book of the just, uh, and the book of the wars of Yahweh, which may be the same book. Uh, these are mentioned in I think Second Samuel and in uh, Joshua. I'd love to see those archaic uh, Hebrew poetry. We have a couple of quotes from them, and that's about it. Uh, I'd just love to see that. Uh, if there really was such a thing as the Book of Gad the Seer and the Book of Nathan and all that that are mentioned in uh, Samuel and Kings, which may just be a literary prop, uh, but if they existed, oh boy, would that be great. And uh, if the epistle of Paul to the Laodiceans was not simply a renamed Ephesians uh, or vice versa, the original name of, I guess, the reworked Ephesians. I- I'd love to see that, right? So there are uh, some some uh, goodies I-, I would just love to see, and I hope they'll yet be rediscovered. I mean, they do rediscover some of these things. Hmm, let's see. This is from Jamie in Birmingham, Alabama. I don't have a strong southern accent, so if I can make a request, I love your extreme Scottish accent and honor these Presbyterian friends that I'm writing about today. I need to ask your help in responding to some Bible-believing friends who were shocked when I posted a positive comment related to the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage. I was a long-time fundamentalist and would have been on their side ten years ago. I've agreed to talk more with several friends over lunch so that they can understand my view of, the, of the issue in the, this issue in the Bible. It took me ten years to leave that kind of faith behind, and for me it started with an appreciation for science and skepticism. Books like Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything and podcasts like The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe helped me as I began to develop some critical thinking skills. Ten years later it's all culminated with The Bible Geek. For these folks to judge others in this way, they have to have supreme confidence in two things. First, that the Bible is God's primary method for communicating his truth to humans. Second, that their method of interpreting the Bible is the right one. Here's my question. When I meet these folks, I will primarily listen to them and see what they want to talk about. But I want to have five thought-provoking questions uh, in my back pocket that might help them open their minds a bit. If I lead with the Christ myth theory or some of the other more extreme thoughts that I have, they will dismiss it out of hand. I'm looking for those uh, initial chinks in the armor of the of biblical inerrancy that might even get the staunchest fundamentalist asking questions? What saith the geek? Well, I'd say you've given a real good answer already for for two of them. Uh, About the, the authority of the Bible. Does the Bible actually claim that it is the authoritative inspired word of God? Uh, To even ask that question is to show that you've already answered it, as if the Bible speaks with a single voice because it all comes from the divine author or inspirer. But that's begging the question. If you look at it inductively, you find that, uh, uh, no, actually, though various writers in the Bible will occasionally refer to 
uh, other writings in the Bible, older ones, as scripture and inspired and all that, though there's precious few, but there are some such statements, they're not saying it about their own writing. And how do you know that they are right when they say things like every scripture breathed out by God is profitable uh, for correction, instruction, all that stuff? Uh, how do you know they're right when, like in Second uh, Peter, I think it is, says, uh, the, no scripture is of private interpretation because uh, uh, none of them were created individually. Uh, rather, they were written by men carried along by the spirit how do you know they're right i mean if even if those very guarded claims and not about one's own writing by the way if if uh, these are uh, automatically to be accepted you've again just deductively assumed that the bible is authoritative uh, so the, the claim of any biblical writer doesn't establish authority. You need to, to have reason to think it's authoritative before that makes any difference to you. And I can show you passages in the Upanishads of the Quran that make that claim. Does a Christian believe that uh, their claims are reliable simply because someone has made them? Uh, another, another question they got to think about is, even if Jeremiah or Isaiah or someone says, as they often do, this is the word of Yahweh. He said to me, say to Israel thus and so, does that guarantee the accuracy of the texts embodying these oracles or messages or preachments that they made? Uh, was Baruch, the scribe of Jeremiah, necessarily inspired and infallible? Does that guarantee that no one has interpolated various things into that? The writer of Revelation was nervous about that. He certainly thought his uh, revelations, at least what he saw, not necessarily the very words, uh, came from God. And that's why he says, now keep your mitts off. If anybody takes away any of what I've written, uh, his share of the tree of life is going to be taken away. If anybody adds anything to it, uh, the pains of hell are going to be added to him. In other words, he thought it was quite likely that somebody could screw it up. How do you know that didn't happen? Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, that once you start seeing discrepancies within the Gospels, for instance, look at a Revelation-like passage, Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, then you look at what Matthew and Luke did to it. They've taken away stuff and added to it. We know that happened, right? Even though John, whoever he was, didn't want it to happen. So even if the original oral messages from God were divinely inspired, that says nothing about their transcription or preservation. They might have been uh, divinely protected, but there's nothing that says that. I mean, really, the, the assumption that, that they were protected, that is simply a, an, a statement of faith, because if that wasn't true, then we're, we're walking on thin ice. Right? And uh, even when people like Benjamin Warfield said, look, if you contend that the Bible has an error in it, and you show me the passage, and I can't wheedle out of it one way or the other, we're going to have to withhold judgment 
because we don't have the original autograph writings. For all we know, someone has changed it, and if it is an error, it must be a copyist error. How do we know that? Again, circular reasoning, because the original couldn't have had errors in it, just sheer faith assertion. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, that, and, and if you admit that that is possible, that without any manuscript evidence, it's quite likely that the, uh, the text has been mistranscribed earlier than we can trace, that holds true for every page of the Bible. How do you know? Like people uh, just loved and swore by the thing in First John about how there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. Oh, hallelujah. There's clear biblical backing for the doctrine of the Trinity, but <laughs> oops, it turns out it's a spurious uh, Renaissance era interpolation. No ancient Greek manuscripts have it. You could have the same thing. Suppose John 3.16 wasn't in the original text. How could you know? I mean, you know, if you take the fundamentalist reasoning that says, well, any error can't have been in the original, so it's, you know, for all we know, it's open to errors anywhere and everywhere, then this could easily be out. I mean, you don't know that it wasn't in there, but the point is it's all a marshy quicksand bog, right? There's no way to be sure what it originally said, even if you did have reason to to believe that it was authoritative and inspired. Here's another problem. You mentioned in, in uh, interpretation. Once I heard a guy uh, give a, a very sophisticated theologian, I enjoyed a book of his about uh, inspiration. I happened to hear him speak at Gordon-Conwell once, and he said, you preachers have to preach with authority because course it's not your own authority but it's your authority as a herald of the word of God it's as if you were a messenger sent by a king to another country as his ambassador and you read the the message the king wrote and uh, he can't be there but he's he uh, ultimatum a declaration of war an offer of peace terms whatever for you to read what the king wrote it's as if the king were there. So they're going to make the decision as if it was the king himself talking to him, though it's you. And that's the way you are in the pulpit. Uh, you're not saying these things about the gospel because they're your opinion. Uh, no, uh, you are the herald for what uh, the, the, the king, God, said. Well, I raised my hand and said... Uh, how about if the the uh, if there's ambiguity in the way the thing is written? Uh, how about if it's not at all clear? Uh, how about if you're not really sure something looks odd to you and you wonder, gee, is this really what the king said? I think somebody's left out a word, a crucial word or something. How do you know? Surely this has to uh, to erode your confidence to just speak in the word of God. And to, to simplify this, ambiguity is just as bad as error, right? If you're trying to determine whether the New Testament says divorce is allowable or not, well, you've got Mark and Luke on the one hand, who the way it's usually taken, though I think this is wrong, that they're usually taken to mean, no, 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 according to Jesus, divorce is never allowable. Well, and then you got Matthew that says, well, it usually isn't, but in case of porneia, it, it is. 
Well, of course, we don't really know what porneia means. Literally, it means prostitution, but it had come to have a wider meaning of immorality, so we don't exactly know. Uh, and that's true of the passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy about homosexuality. It condemns the malakoi and the arsenokoitai. Uh, what are they? Well, uh, both are very rare words in Greek, by which I mean we don't find them in almost any Greek literature from the ancient world that happens to survive. Right, the ancients would have known, but in the context doesn't really help us. Uh, and if you do a, an etymological study on them and try to figure out, well, where would they have come from, you get mixed results. Uh, there was a real interesting thing in John Boswell's book, uh, what was it, Christianity, Homosexuality, and Social Tolerance, where he suggests that uh, arsenokoitai meant a male prostitute. Uh, a male homosexual prostitute, and that malakoi, soft ones, effeminate ones, was a particular kind of young or an adolescent gay male prostitute, a, a, a catamite. And uh, he made a pretty good case, but then I read Robin Scroggs, equally fascinating book, uh, The New Testament and Homosexuality, where he, he does this linguistic study and says he thinks arsenokoitai is just a Greek translation of the Hebrew phrase in Leviticus, a man who lies with a man as with a woman. Uh, so that it's just a general condemnation of homosexuality. Well, that's great, right? If I have to decide whether homosexuality is morally legitimate based on a text that is ambiguous and genuinely open to different interpretations, can you imagine a preacher getting up there and saying, Brethren, I want to tell you the word of God, the will of God is... <laughs> uh, 65% uh, on the side that homosexuality is wrong. Wait a minute. You're going to be condemning people to hell, excluding them from the church, calling them immoral on the chance that the, these couple of passages uh, might mean so-and-so or even probably mean so-and-so. You're, you're crazy. right? This is illogical and f even from a fundamentalist standpoint. Their, their uh, use of the Bible assumes a lack of ambiguity. Martin Luther called it the perspicuity of Scripture. Oh, it's clear enough. <laughs> no, it isn't. Not on everything. In fact, there is not a major issue of Christology or salvation over which Christians have not very reasonably differed through 2,000 years. Is Jesus God? Uh, the Arians and the Athanasians both had interesting arguments, and so on and so on. Pro and con, the Trinity. It's, it's just not clear, because the Bible is not written systematically. Theologians know darn well they have to try to reconstruct the system of thought from which the writer speaks. Uh, and uh, that's uh, not easy to do. You can't necessarily do that. And uh, so the ambiguity of the Bible, the, the groundlessness of the assumption that the Bible is inspired and that you know it because uh, the Bible says so, uh, that's just grossly circular. Uh, and uh, so these are some of the major things. It doesn't get into all these things about 
God commanding genocide, Jesus not existing, and all that. Because you're right, those things just seem like frontal assaults. You're just like dropping the uh, the Acme safe on the head of the of wild E. Coyote with that stuff. They're not going to listen. Uh, and uh, not that I want to deconvert anybody, right? I'm just saying if you find yourself in the position talking to these people and they are affirming this dogmatic faith, you want to explain why you don't buy it. And uh, these are some very basic reasons that throw the whole thing uh, up for grabs, I think. So hope that helps, Jamie. Oh, let's see. Uh, this is from Art Comenio in Satellite Beach, Florida. <laughs> 50 sci-fi. In your book, The Christ Myth Theory and Its Problems, you state that two problems with theism are idealist metaphysics and, quote, the utter lack of evidence of a providential deity's supervision of the world, unquote. I'm with you on both those points. Then you go on to state... Uh, I should add, too, that I am a respectful God-denier. That is, I dissent from theism from within the theological discussion, not from outside it. I would rather speak of the death of God, along with Nietzsche and Altizer, than the non-existence of God. This is where you lost me. Uh, and a quote, this is where you lost me, Art says. Please say a little about death of God philosophy and why it makes so much sense to you. Well, uh, technically, it's not incompatible with atheism, and it might even be thought to presuppose atheism, but it, it deals with the wider implications vis-a-vis -vis religion and values, period, because uh, the death of God is uh, the crisis of faith in God as the foundation for civilization's values and for the individual system of values, that uh, there is now no longer any axiomatic uh, well, square one or, or foundation for uh, right and wrong, for truth. In a sense, there isn't any truth. The death of God is the death of truth because there's no objective truth out there. I mean, there are facts, right? Mundane facts. Uh, the earth is so-and-so distance from the sun. If you drink Drano, it's going to kill you and stuff like that. Uh, nobody denies that. that. That's obvious enough, though it is worth noting that now philosophy, some philosophers of science following uh, Thomas Kuhn and others would say as to why these things are, uh, it, it, none of it is self-evident. Sometimes it's just a way of construing the facts, the data we do have. Data is data for some theory, some reconstruction. It has to be placed within a particular paradigm or heuristic model before it'll make any sense at all. And so when you think of uh, like though people in uh, wild uh, spasms of lunacy uh, in the ancient world, their paradigm for making sense of this data was that there were demons. Uh, then, uh, you know, later on we found out, no, it's, it's germs, it's brain legions, things like that. Now, the, uh, forget for a moment that demons appear to be superstitious, right, and myths. 
they didn't know that. There was no reason for them to think that. It was entirely valid to use the only analogy they had on hand, like abusive husbands uh, or muggers, right? that uh, you could just be victimized by somebody who, however, was invisible and intangible. Well, instead, we say there are invisible, virtually intangible things like delusions, psychoses, germs, and so on that, are, uh, that, that make the difference. And uh, our explanation is more modest and economical and, to some degree, verifiable uh, under the microscope and so forth. Uh, but even there, it's not self-evident what the facts are sometimes. Right, uh, and uh, and so uh, even in terms of uh, the the facts, ma'am, just the facts, it's a little bit less certain than it was. But in terms of meaning, right and wrong, is there a God? All kinds of things that that we say this is the truth. Uh, we uh, we no longer have any kind of objective yardstick for that. Uh, is our experience illusory, as Hindus and Buddhists uh, say, some of them, or not? Uh, I don't know how you could even tell that. I don't know how you could settle that. And so uh, the death of God means that we are past the time of comfortable certainties or the, the belief that comfortable certainties might exist. Uh, we have to uh, realize that... Uh, our condition is that of uh, like being on the earth unchained from its orbit about the sun. Things could go anywhere. There's no guarantee of anything. You, uh, it implies a kind of uh, total skepticism and existentialism that meaning must be in the eye of the beholder. So if there were some entity who called himself God and said, well, I'll just tell you what the world means, that would be his opinion, but that's all it could be. I mean, he might be able to incinerate you with a glance, but that would just be his opinion uh, that uh, that it was uh, things were this way and not that. So, you know, what is the the truth? Is there a God to give meaning and value to life? No, there is not. We've come to realize that in Western culture, at least the you know the intelligentsia, the avant-garde. And if we have realized that, that means we're thrown back on ourselves to give life meaning, to become gods, uh, fallible gods, but we are the ones that decide. And uh, therefore, man turns into Superman to replace the dead god. And so to say you believe in the death of God... Uh, means that you're thinking in that framework. It's not simply an opinion that, uh, oops, guess God doesn't exist. It's certainly not incompatible, but it's a sort of a bigger frame of reference and a uh, bigger stance that I, I think is more profound and uh, and uh, helpful. So I, I, but again, it's not. They're not really alternatives. Thanks, Art. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, this from Jason Quackenbush. He says, first, in your recent podcast, you were discussing the idea of taking the Eucharist, Holy Communion, right, as an atheist. And this is something that I've often thought about. I feel a deep-seated cultural connection to Christian religion, despite not growing up in any particular church. Unlike many non-believers, my path went the other way from a youthful militant atheism through a deep fascination with Wittgenstein's theory of language to a place where I'm more or less in 
engaged in a sort of radical pluralism that holds all religious beliefs are true, including the negation of those beliefs. Embrace the paradox. The world is absurd, but people and the crazy things we do are beautiful. Uh, Fenord? F-N-O-R-D? I don't get that. Uh, So as a result, over the years, I have at times been a regular attendee at this or that congregation. Usually how good the music is determines how long I stick around. Uh, But uh, a place with a good choir that can do justice to Bach will keep me coming back. I've never taken communion, however, because it always seemed vaguely disrespectful to the faith of the others around me. At the same time, I've really wanted to, in order to more fully participate in the ritual of the church, which is what I'm there for in the end. It's something I've struggled with, and I'd very much like to know your thoughts on the matter. Well, uh, as an atheist... I have, for for some years, taken communion at the Episcopal Church, where, like you, I really enjoyed the liturgy and the ceremony and the music. Oh, boy, did I love the music. I loved singing it and so forth. Um, and I, I did take communion, and um, I viewed it... I, at that time, I viewed myself as a kind of death-of-God Christian, I viewed Christianity as a kind of ethical commitment expressed through rituals and symbols which did not have discrete, objective reference points. There wasn't a Christ. There wasn't a Holy Spirit. There wasn't somebody up there in heaven listening. But what we were doing had the power of drama and ritual, and it enabled a kind of self-reflection and transcendence of the ego that was a wholesome thing, encouraging uh, a kind of heroic morality, going above and beyond just doing the minimum and trying not to be bad, but trying to stretch further to be better. And uh, this, uh, this didn't require a belief in a literal God or Christ. I, I remember once listening to Bob Dylan's song, You Gotta Save Somebody. And uh, uh, it, uh, it struck me, yeah, this kind of crystallizes what I think, that I don't know if Jesus ever existed or not, but I do read these moving stories in which the Jesus character summons people to a particular kind of life of discipleship, and that seems to me to be a call I want to respond to. Uh, This is a a style of life and of morality that that I think is is great. I'm not saying everybody has to do it, and like you, it's the Buddhist, the Jew, others, anybody may have the same sort of thing. There are different paths uh, that have different different, uh, distinctives and great things to offer, but this speaks to me, so I'm doing it, and as long as I felt that I was a Christian, though not a theist, I felt like I was I was entitled to take communion, and I did. But a few years ago, I, I have kind of come to think, even there, I'm not so sure. I'm not that sure I want to go with all the ethics uh, attributed to Jesus as I understand them. I agree with some of it. I admire some of it, but that's probably not enough. Uh, I would say that in terms of ethics, it's really Aristotle and Epicurus that shape my moral reasoning. 
Uh, and uh, so um, I learn a lot from the Jesus character and the Buddha character, and uh, that's fine with me, but I felt like agreeing with Jesus is not being a Christian. And so I, uh, I stopped taking communion, and uh, it wasn't long before I stopped going to church, uh, too. Uh, but that was slightly different. I just found it was wearing on me. I was losing interest in it. May go back to it sometime. It's not like I thought, oh, this is no good. What am I wasting my time for? Okay, second, in the same show, a listener asked about alternative reading orders for the Jewish scriptures, and it reminded me of a project I've played with from uh, time to time that I wonder if you might have some thoughts on. Inspired by the Star Wars machete order and other methods of blunting the trauma watching the prequels uh, during a Star Wars viewing party, I've been putting together what I call the Temple Mysticism Reading Order, inspired by... Now, you know what the point of the Star Wars thing was, right? That uh, some of us old fogies watched the movies in the order in which they first appeared. Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, uh, Return of the Jedi... And then years later, uh, the other ones, Phantom Menace, Clone Wars... uh, Revenge of the Sith came out, and they were supposed to lead up to the initial trilogy, even though obviously they were written after the fact, and so it doesn't quite fit sometimes. And and uh, if you like the first three, you're not so sure you like the the, the second trilogy. And uh, so, what should you do? Like if you're raising your kids, and when time comes to show them the Star Wars movies, you're not going to deny, deny them seeing any of the six. So what are you going to do? Start with Uh, the first of the prequel trilogy, I think maybe you should, because that gives them the optimum possibility of of seeing it as an organic whole, an advantage that us old fogies didn't have. So I would say you should. It's going to be a different experience. You're going to have a different experience of the first three to come out, beginning in 77, if you see them after the ones made later, but you should. That's the best way, maybe the only way, to give the the prequel series a, a fair shake. So, what do we do with regard to the Bible? Because it's not really clear when those books were written relative to one another, so what would make a good order in which to read them. Okay, I've been putting together what I call the Temple Mysticism Reading Order, inspired by Margaret Barker. The idea is to try to put together the scriptures in an order that would fit the world views of a first century literate Jewish polytheist uh, who believed in the Isaiah cult and had gotten apocalyptic with it. The order I've got so far runs something like this. Genesis 1-5 to uh, leading up to the flood. Enoch uh, the Noah story, Genesis 6-11. Six, six the Lot story is a sort of second flood, Genesis 18-22. through 22. Abraham's deal, uh, covenant, I guess, uh, Genesis 12-17. through 17. Job, then skipping the tales of the patriarchs in Genesis 23-50, to 50, and instead reading Jubilees. Then Exodus, followed by Ruth, then Isaiah, Daniel, Bell and the Dragon, Psalms, Proverbs, Koheleth, or Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and maybe Judith next. I haven't figured out where to proceed from there, but would love to hear your thoughts. My impulse would be to leave out a lot of the historical stuff that was important to the aristocracy in Babylon, but maybe some things in there like Joshua or First Kings would still be common ground. Um... 
here I uh, think that the decision would uh, depend on where you think the Deuteronomic history comes in because it really is a, like Jacob Neusner says about Talmudic and Mishnaic documents they really are they really apply to and are to be read in the light of the point being made in them long after the subject matter they discuss so it depends on when you think the Deuteronomic reform happened was it during the exile or was it during the time of Josiah uh, decades earlier or as I'm beginning to think during the time of the Maccabees uh, and uh, because you, you like uh, you're you're mentioning being a first century polytheistic Jew, so you're assuming and and I agree the Jewish polytheism continued pretty darn late in the game, and it may be that it was in that time that the the Deuteronomic history was written. Uh, and that the Deuteronomic reform occurred. And so uh, this is like uh, a rewriting of history from a later standpoint, and maybe it would make the best sense to read it uh, as a writing of that time, after the prophets and so forth. Um, and, uh, oh, and then Chronicles still later. Uh, yeah, I know that uh, most people think the Deuteronomic history was written after the prophets, but... Uh, but that's what I mean. It would depend on when you think. Was it written in the just after Isaiah, or uh, just before Jeremiah, or was it after uh, the uh, later prophets like Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah? Uh, it it depends on a lot of. Uh, decisions like that which are hard to nail down but I think any order in which you read them as long as you have buzzing around in your head these questions they will provide a set of lenses through which to read each each book uh, and you're saying well gee look this looks kind of like Deuteronomic uh, propaganda to me uh, this looks like a survival of the old myth and so on and, and uh, it will make less difference in what order you actually read them, but so that that's not much of an answer, but maybe that's some stuff to uh, think about. I think you got a great idea there. Uh, third, the exchange with you and Dr. Lintner, Christian Lintner, has been fascinating, and I had a thought about that while you were discussing the usage of the terms ecclesia and the flock by the gospel writers. Like, why didn't the word church come up more often, right? It occurred to me that if Dr. Lintner is right and the bloom of apocalyptic monasticism comes from a Buddhist influence, perhaps related to the leadership of the proto-desert fathers and zealots at Qumran, Masada, and elsewhere by James the Just, a la Robert Eisenman, then could it be that the use of ecclesia or flock by uh, sayings using those terms, uh, whoops, the use of uh, then could it be that the use of ecclesia or flock by later writers is an attempt to work out what is meant in uh, remembered sayings using those terms to mean something like sangha in Buddhism. I haven't dug too deep into this, but I wonder if you think that the idea has legs and is worth further research. Yeah, because uh, that's very good, because ecclesia, an assembly of called out ones, sometimes you hear, or, or a summoned assembly, assembly, a called assembly, like getting all the town together, a town hall meeting. That is sort of like everybody come, whereas uh, the uh, 
the flock, uh, that uh, that seems to uh, what was the other one? Yeah, uh, well, that that seems to imply a more selective thing, as in the Gospel of John. The reason you can't. Uh, hear my voice is that you're not of my flock, a kind of pre-selected uh, group. And uh, and that would fit the Sangha, an intentional community of Buddhist disciples. That's very interesting. Good thinking. Uh, so, thanks, Jason. Yeah, I uh, find this Buddhism thing and Christian origins just enormously interesting. Um, here's one from John. I don't know if you've brought it up in previous episodes, but it seems to deserve a frenetic urgency. Bible studies as a science subject. Before I ruffle the feathers of non-believers, what I mean, what I meant was teaching that the Bible... Wait a minute. Before I ruffle the feathers of non-believers, what I meant was teaching what the Bible truly meant cross-referencing the, the English version to the original Greek and maybe even Hebrew. Classes on higher criticism that should cover manuscript errors, gospel dates, and if it is truly moral and inerrant. Also a must is comparative mythology to show how the Old and New Testament writers borrowed myths and legends that came before them. It came to my mind that when Bible-thumping bibliolaters flooded my Facebook timeline with all sorts of espousing, uh, vile shrieking, uh, and constant shouts of how America is going to hell since the Supreme Court has now made gay marriage legal in all 50 states. I live in the Philippines where 80% of the population is Roman Catholic and it breaks my heart reading all sorts of homophobic uh, Bible thumping. I responded in Facebook too and posted that we should not base our societal and uh, our societal legislation on mere holy texts for their man-made, error-filled and mythical. I received a lot of flack, but I've refuted them all thanks to your books, Acharya's uh, Who Was Jesus, Fingerprints of the Christ, and even Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus and God's Problem. I came to the conclusion that roughly 90% of Christian apologists and Bible thumpers didn't read the Bible cover to cover. They cherry-pick verses that suit their needs, and once you bring up verses that are absurd and atrocious, they shout, you're taking it out of context, or the Bible is inerrant. My response then would be, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Galatians 4.16 Yeah, I'm afraid you have, John. Um... This sort of approach to the Bible used to be more common in mainstream seminaries and in university religion departments. And I'm sure you can still find some places where it is taught, but the dearth of it is one of the things that led me to start the Institute for Higher Critical Studies, where, as you may remember, I uh, make an arrangement with uh, interested people to... Um, have them take non-credit courses with me, reading and discussion courses where I sign several books on a particular topic, and then once a week for an hour or so we, we will talk about the reading. And uh, they may do papers or whatever, because it seems to me this kind of education, which used to be standard, is is falling away 
partly because of a conservative retrenchment where even so-called mainstream denominations are under heavy, pre- under heavy pressure from evangelicals in the denomination that say, as you anticipate, if you're teaching that kind of stuff, you're undermining Christianity, etc., and maybe you are. Um, on the one hand, so that they tend to be more and more conservative, uh, retrenchment. And on the other, uh, the uh, liberal seminaries are uh, not really interested in that. They're axe grinding for the left. So, like at, at Drew, for instance, where I got both of my doctorates, I hear that now they have like uh, queer studies in the New Testament and so on. I can't even imagine what that means. Uh, and, and a lot of stuff like this where it is simply social propaganda. Uh, and, and this is regardless of what your particular stance is. Like, I'm not against gay marriage, uh, and yet I, I don't want to see the, the text twisted as propaganda for it. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I, I just, I'd say leave the Bible out of it, uh, because as you say, it's just like liberals know better than to think you can just get your policy from the Bible. But if they're ministers, they, I think, imbibe this, this, this feeling that if they can use the Bible in such a way as to bring on board the idiots in the pews, then let's have a theology of homosexuality and all that don't need one as far as I'm concerned. Uh, But yeah, the scientific study of of the Bible is very, very important and uh, and, uh, sadly, uh, today it has to be pursued as an individual hobby. Um, uh, One more. Alex says, what do you think is older, the Jesus cult or the Christ cult? You know, we're talking about Burton Mack here, right? He says that you can distinguish various Jesus movements in the first century and Christ cults which do not all blossom from the same root. Uh, the various combinations of them eventually came together. Gnostic mystery religion, ascetics, all kinds of things. Uh, cynic-like philosophers. Uh, I would have to say, if you're talking about the roots of them, that probably the uh, the the Christ cult reflecting the archaic religions of the dying and rising God, which eventually became mystery religions of personal spiritual initiation, involving sacramental participation in the death and resurrection or other victory of the God that brings salvation. I'd say that's older. Where the name Jesus came into it is difficult to say. Uh, it could have been reapplied to Osiris or Baal or whatever, or it could reflect the very old belief that in his uh, contest with Leviathan and uh, Rahab, Yahweh was killed and rose from the dead, just like Baal and Marduk in their primordial battles. And Jesus, meaning Yah- Jesus or Yahoshua, Yahweh is salvation, could have uh, denoted that he had come to earth as he had several times in the Old Testament, right? The angel of Yahweh. And so that there could have been a direct Yahweh dying and rising God myth real far back and uh, that uh, depends on I guess where you want to say Christianity as we know it began or where the Christ cult began Uh, probably the Jesus cult seems to me it seems to me to uh, 
to presuppose later events like the evolution of Galilean Judaism, uh, the uh, the currency of Hellenistic philosophy, uh, and uh, like uh, cynicism and all that, uh, and even uh, novelistic hero stories where the hero seems to die and rise, though that too has very old roots, back to the 7th century BCE. So it's tough to say, but I would kind of think it was the heavily mythological Christ cult. Hmm. Okay, well, I guess that's it for today. i got to go on and do a Lovecraft geek uh, also. and But I think this is a decent amount of stuff. I uh, will um, get to more... Uh, soon as I feel I can. i got a bunch of writing to do soon, but I'll try not to, not to neglect my fellow geeks. So, uh, and uh, let me just come hat in hand. Uh, the Bible geek is uh, pretty much destitute uh, at the moment, and if you can help the old Price family, we'd sure appreciate it. But if you can't, don't think twice about it. Uh, thanks for being with us in the Bible geek today, and I'll see you soon. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeon Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Atkinson. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.